Hello, this is Confabulation. My name is David. My pronouns are he and him. Um, and we also have Michelle on. So Michelle, you can introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Michelle. My pronouns are she and her. And joining us, we have, um, you can introduce yourselves as well. My name is Larry Lancet, and I am a he or a him. And I'm Cecily Lancet, and I'm a she, her. All right. Awesome. Um, and we are Sisters House, me, uh, David, and Michelle. Um, we are Sisters House, a domestic violence advocacy and education organization. If you know anyone is experiencing domestic violence, you can call our hotline at 253-383-4275 or visit our website at OurSistersHouse.com. Um, this episode, we have two special guests. Um, and they are co-producers of the phenomenal children's education show, Reading Rainbow. Um, I should have used that first to introduce yourselves. All right. Um, so I, I would like, you know, give you guys a chance to, you know, what is Re Reading Rainbow and why, what is, you know, significant about Reading Rainbow? Um, so basically just jump right into the question um, and whoever wants to speak first can go. Well, Reading Rainbow <clears throat> was on public television broadcast for 23 years, along with Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. It was a real classic children's series on PBS for many years. And Reading Rainbow was developed in order to help children um, keep their reading skills over the summer. Studies had shown that children would get cranked up on their reading skills and pre-reading skills, and then they'd get out for the summer and they would come back to school and they would have lost a lot of their gains. Uh, and so we were approached by PBS to develop a series that would help children not so much learn to read as to love to read. Hmm. And our first pilot was funded when? Uh, the first pilot was funded in 1981 uh, by CPB and Kellogg. And uh, we produced a pilot that year, and uh, then we got series funding, and the series debuted in, uh, I guess, June or July of 1983. And then we were on the air for 25 years, 26 years. Actually. Oh, 26, I said 23. I'm behind the times. Well, um, and one of the things, uh, people ask us quite a bit, so, you know, TV and books were the enemy back then. This was before the internet, this was before cell phones, this was before everything. And most of the time children had four choices, which were the three commercial networks and public television. And public television was distinctly non-commercial. And so um, we were inspired by that mission. It was tough. It's like, oh gosh, use TV to get children into books. Ooh, that's, mm. that was a big, a tall order back in the day. Television was called the plug-in drug. Um, and uh, there was a lot of timely discussion about the impact of children's lives from watching plenty of TV. So one of the things we knew was that the worst readers of all children out there, the ones who lagged behind the norm most frequently were black boys early elementary, young, black 
boys. And um, we were determined to see if we could address that issue. That was a very disturbing statistic. And so we said, you know, the best way we can do that is to find someone who looks like them. And who might that be? So we started looking around all kinds of people, all kinds. And one day, one of the associate producers says, you know, LeVar Burton is going to be on Sue Simmons Live at 5. I think we should take a look. And so we tuned in. And here was this young, dynamic, handsome guy. Just we said, no need to look anymore. This is the man for the job. So we uh, called up his agent, <clears throat> and LeVar at that time happened to be uh, cruising down the Zambezi River. He was incommunicado. But his agent, who had coincidentally been a former classroom teacher, Dolores Robinson, she said, well, I can't talk to LeVar right now, but this sounds like exactly the kind of project he would like to do, and I'll commit him to do this. And we said, wow, that she is said, great. Boy, that was easy. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and sure enough, uh, when we when we wrote the pilot and uh, he had he had just come off, he arrived on set to do the pilot. I think he had, he had been on the river. He had been, been on, on the Zambezi river. river and he <laughs> had flown from Africa to New York on the red eye and showed up on the set early in the morning and the first thing he did after he said hello is, can I have a glass of orange juice and a toothbrush, please? So that yeah, so was that's our how, first that's uh, how our relationship started. And uh, right. he was committed from the very first moment that he started to work with us. And uh, uh, over the next 26 years, the LeVar never missed a production date. He was on set for every single show, never missed a line. In fact, uh, Last night, uh, December 11th, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award at the first annual Children and Family Emmys, which was telecast last night. And uh, it was a wonderful moment for him because uh, he uh, has been a great, a great talent for us and done some amazing things during his life, not to mention, of course, Roots and Star Trek The Next Generation and other things that he's done. So he's been a busy fellow. He has. And the one thing that we after we got to know each other after that first season, we knew this was a guy who could do anything we threw at him. He could fly airplanes. He could scuba dive. He didn't care about getting covered with elephant slobber. He didn't care about whatever he had to do. He would do it fearlessly. And that's for a long time. That's 25 years. He was dauntless. He never said never. I don't want to do that. And as a result, he was able to take children on all kinds of adventures that they would normally never get to have. And um, I, I think that what we learned from doing Rainbow um, and other projects we had done before Rainbow was the critical importance of diversity. Um, that children would be able to see themselves and identify themselves both in LeVar and in the other people we brought uh, to the camera. So, for example, we had a, a segment in the show called Book Reviews where kids would come on and review books. And so we started implementing a very rigorous um, 
diversity approach to first and foremost, the books that we picked. They had to be on inclusive uh, characters. They had to talk about topics of inclusion to be culturally competent in the books that we picked um, and the children that we picked to do the book reviews. And we auditioned those kids um, and they were just all stars. They All the kids knew this was a book uh, commercial and they came into the studio and they said what they wanted to say. We kind of helped them put it together, but they were not given scripts. And um, we have learned later in life, um, based on the documentary Butterfly in the Sky, they went back and talked to some of those kids who are now grown up adults with amazing things that they've done in their own lives. And they have said how important it was to have uh, many different ethnicities, many different racial and cultural backgrounds, non-binary uh, um, kids. And it, it was really a very, very important part of us, not just that we had a person of color as our main spokesperson, but that the whole, um, I don't know, the whole reason for the show was to prevent, present the world in all its beautiful colors literally and figuratively. So how did you end up going about choosing those books and the other stories that were encompassed in Reading Rainbow? Well, each of the shows was um, <clears throat> was centered around a book that we chose to be the key, the uh, the featured book. And then the book review stories, uh, the, the three book reviews that were done at the end of the show were somehow connected thematically or in some other way to the feature book. And what we decided to do was uh, feature each feature book as a, what we called an iconographic animation, which is where we took the actual art from the book and extended it where necessary and moved the camera on the art. So it wasn't true animation, but it was the actual art that was used in the book. And, and the children, in research, the children referred to it as the cartoon. So I thought that was interesting. I thought, oh, they'll never stick around for this. But they did. They did. And we had great narrators. We got celebrity narrators. We tried to match the, the texture and tone of the narrator with the story. So if it was a crime story, we got Peter Falk to do the narration. If it and was a... Uh, we had one about, uh, it's called Bringing the uh, Rain to Capiti Plain. And James Earl Jones read that. And we had native music, ocarina music, native African music. Uh, music. So even, for example, when we had a Native American story, we would bring in Native American authorship and instrumentation for the music scoring. So uh, there's quite a bit of creative, uh, cultural and creative input from people who were not uh, necessarily mainstream speakers um, in the media world. And it made the show authentic. It made it real. Um, and it sent a message that everyone is valid. Every perspective, every cultural experience, every color of every skin is valid and real and important. Wow. I, first of all, I just, you know, want to just affirm you guys and, con and congratulate you guys, even though you don't need my congratulations. I'm sure you got plenty of it. But 20 years, uh, 26 years of success is amazing, you know, and, and then just being pioneers, being able to have that type of vision and, and, and um, all those ideas and actually, you know, see that success um, 
I guess this is not necessarily on the paper, but or the questions, but you know, how did you did you think that you guys were going to get this success? And were there times where you're like, are we doing the right thing, or um, and, and what pushed you toward towards that? I guess. Well, you know, as a as a television producer, you always want a success. Yeah. Um, and when we started doing the project, all we wanted to do was make a good TV show. And, and then over the next ensuing years, you're so consumed by the work, you don't really think about it. And in fact, the awards that we would win were for shows that we had done in the past. And we were too busy working on the ones for the future to really think about it. Hmm. So I think that the, the success of the show has to do more with the, uh, uh, the, the, the uh, chords that we touched in our audience. You know, we were really programming and, and creating for the eight-year-olds inside of us. And I guess we hit the right notes because they all tuned in and they all stayed with us. And we had great success because the audience loved it so much. Um, but we really weren't thinking so much about the success. Maybe when we walked up on stage to receive the Emmys, was maybe <laughs> the only time that we, we really thought about, wow, we've really done something wow, great. Somebody, somebody thinks this somebody is thinks good. good. This is awesome. <laughs> But uh, we were, you know, we were too busy doing it to really think about whether it was successful or not. And I think also, you know, interestingly enough, um, we wouldn't get feedback from our audience. You know, all we would get are statistics from PBS and the statistics were not impressive. You know, there were days when we come back on a, and get, you know, what percentage audience we had and it would have a BMS in there. And I said to somebody, what does BMS mean? And they said, below measurable standards. And we thought, is anybody watching out there? Hello? <laughs> Hello, does anyone hear us? And the amazing thing is that how many years later? How there many were years clues. later? There were clues along the way. I remember yeah, we had been uh, producing for maybe two or three years. And uh, we used to work at the, uh, at the television network, the education television network in South Carolina. We went back for a visit. And uh, as part of their uh, reception for us, they took us out to a, an elementary school in, uh, in outside the city of Columbia. And we walked into the school and they had told the kids who had all gathered in the auditorium that they were going to, the people from Reading Rainbow were going to be there. And there may have been two or 300 kids in the audience. And we walked out from behind the curtain and they all broke into the Reading Rainbow theme at the just as we walked out and was like, my God, Whoa, they actually wow, know this. I know this. <laughs> Somebody is out there. And it was just, a, it, there were amazing moments like that that have or happened. Or in, in elevators where we would be talking about something with Reading Rainbow and the rest of the people in the elevator would break out in song and go, what? <laughs> so it, it's we we did in in a sense i think larry's right we produced it for our 8 year it was just a bunch of 8 year olds and 9 year olds running around on the production team so i think that childlike sense of curiosity um served us very well but the thing that makes me the happiest um <clears throat> is to see if there's a documentary that's been produced on reading rainbow called butterfly in the sky and it just premiered at the tribeca film festival in june and it has great great film sorry to interject keep going oh did you see it i did i How streamed did you it. Get to see it i streamed it keep going okay <laughs> uh, by the way that will be 
probably on the air sometime in the next uh, in 2023. Right. Uh, the deal hasn't yet been made with the distributor, but it's going right. to be out there. It'll be out there. And the thing that um, was incredibly gratifying is that we had an audience of people who are now adults looking back on their experience with Reading Rainbow and saying things like, I had never seen Ed Bradley and uh, somebody else and LeVar Burton had gold earrings and I never saw anybody like that who had a gold earring on TV or someone who looked like me or someone who felt my voice was important. And so years later, to have that perspective on what we did was remarkable. It's what we wanted. It's what we dreamed of doing. You never know how. But the, you just, <clears throat> never, just never know. know how the recognition will come back to you. And now here we are, you know, all these years later. I mean, we started this in 1981. And what is it now? 40 years? Ugh. 40 years ago, we had no idea that at this time in our lives, there would be such a huge understanding and recognition of what we actually did and we took it for granted we were doing what we were doing our thing and we were reaching a lot of kids and giving them a wonderful foundation that we could never have imagined would be as successful well, we hoped. And meaningful. we always hoped i mean eyes on the prize right you guys do this wonderful podcast and you know that you want to get messages out there you want to get impressions out there you want the world to understand and know more about what you're doing we never get as content creators we don't get a lot of feedback you know it's not like you have nielsen ratings you don't you the only way that we got our feedback was about 40 years later i mean we certainly had we were so lucky to be honored with so many uh, awards for the show. So we knew there was a certain audience out there that appreciated it. But to hear the grown-up people who saw this as kids and who were impacted by it is just the most unbelievable affirmation of, wow, we did what we set out to do. Can you believe it? Yeah. That was awesome. So <laughs> since you have just participated in a documentary and you have been in the background aspect, right, producing uh, for all those years and you had the opportunity to talk about race and, I mean, you were in the forefront of it, right? And a lot of yeah. people don't have those conversations, especially, as you said, 40 years ago. How has that kind of, how have you seen the adjustment in society, kind of? And also, I mean, as you guys were producing the change in bringing it in the screen and also through Butterfly in the Sky and the new conversations that people have had. Sorry, that was a complex question. That was a great, that's a great question, Michelle. I, I think that when we told PBS we had our host, and they said, who is it? We said, LeVar Burton. Oh, the guy in Roots? Yes. Huh. Well, all right. People were stunned. They were surprised. Um, it's not that they were horrified. It was just like, ooh, wow, we never considered that. And we felt like, well, good. Now that's going to start being considered. Good. Right answer, PBS. 
And um, so the dialogue then was never the kinds of open conversations we have today. If someone thought it was not a good idea to have LeVar be the host, they never said anything to us. But the issues about race were not on the table for open discussion. And here's a story that I think is very relevant to your question. And LeVar was so on point with this. We had a lot to learn because LeVar came on set for the pilot and then he came back to shoot the series and he had a mustache, which he did not have in the first show. And I said, oh, no, no, mustache, got to go, got to go. And LeVar didn't want to shave it. And I thought, oh, no, it's going to look different. It's like the kids won't. Well, he did shave his mustache for the second series, but he came back for the third series. And not only did he have a mustache, but he had an earring. And I said, LeVar, I don't know. I'm just really worried about consistency. And he said, well, here's the deal. He said, you know, kids' parents and their fathers specifically come home sometimes with hair or not hair, sometimes with a mustache or no mustache. You know, some will have earrings and some won't. <clears throat> they still know who their father is. And he said, by the way, I am playing me. I am me in this. I'm not playing another character. And his comment on that and this is in the film, and I, I don't mind sort of retelling or quoting, is that when you are not affirmed by society, when you are not, when something about you is wrong, whether it's the color of your skin or the way your hair looks or the way you speak with an accent, or he said, I was trying to sort out who I was. And he was so authentic in his commitment to his role that if he wasn't playing somebody else, he was playing himself. And when he said that to me, I thought, I can't argue with this man who is in fact playing himself. What do I say to that? Don't be yourself. When the very issue and issues we were facing back in that day were exactly about that but nobody was coming forward with it and this little tempest in a teapot and i said well i gotta go with this man right or wrong and in the end he was right because guess what nobody ran away screaming when he, he had one of those straight up hairdos you know and sometimes he had close-cut hairdos he had all kinds of looks it was like all of the things they say about jane Pauley with 25 different hairdos but guess what? Jane Pauley was Jane Pauley. And if she could be herself, LeVar could be himself. And um, so that concept of who am I, he was a role model to millions of children of all colors and stripes. And he did it his way. And I think that that dialogue could probably never have happened in that environment. It just was not discussed. And I think today, when people are just now understanding the, the gender spectrum, 
um, understanding the importance of soulfulness and identity, um, cultural identities, ethnic identities, the, all of the groups that we as human beings identify communities that we're part of, that the opportunity to have dialogue about who we are, not only the concept of the breadth of that, that has grown, the fear that that has created in the outside world for people who are not ready for the world to be different from who they are, um, is a huge step forward. Black Lives Matter, the Rainbow Coalition, people who have had to not be who they were and really suffer terribly because of that, have now places to go and people to talk to and communities they can address. <laughs> Dialogue can be had online. The opposite side of the coin there is the hate that has also been fostered. Not only learning and broader social boundaries, if you will, but those social boundaries have also been, be made, have been made broader by people who are terrified and fearful of difference. So <clears throat> I think we've gained a lot of yardage and I think that there is opposition. There are other viewpoints out there that are fighting to stay alive at a time when they're obsolete. Wow, uh, thank you for that great answer. And also, um, you know, it's, I know it's very important to be, you know, you can get a lot further in life by being your authentic self, you know, cause you can have, you can have a, be a character, but how long can you sustain that? You know? Um, right. Um, and then with my next question is uh, with a uh, nonprofit structure, how did you complete, um, compete with private sector in terms of marketing and advertising? Well, our company was not a, uh, 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 nonprofit. We were in, <laughs> we were a for-profit company. Uh, the public television stations, of course, uh, were nonprofit. So they contracted with us to do it. Um, what was your question though? How did we do that? Um, just how to compete with the private sector in terms of marketing and advertising. So, you know, that if I could step oh, in, please. we, um, we were competing <clears throat> within a public television, uh, market. We were competing with Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers. We were not competing with Saturday morning cartoons. <clears throat> and so um, our marketing didn't really depend on anything from the private sector. However, the underwriters who paid for the show, <clears throat> Kellogg's, B. Dalton, um, many, many foundations that came in, the National Science Foundation, the Ford Foundation, <clears throat> Arthur Vining Davis Foundation. So we were recognized not only by the nonprofits who were in the business of funding good works, but we also had the benefit of private sector businesses that wanted to be associated with the work we did. They wanted to be associated with public broadcasting. So we never considered ourselves uh, up against Smurfs, for example. And Reading Rainbow was also the number one used program in American schools for, I think, 24 years. So we also had a substantial channel into the schools where teachers would use the shows for, um, you know, cross-curriculum uh, cross cross integration. You know, so they have a geography lesson. They'd find a rainbow show that worked into that or 
we're studying volcanoes today. Let's watch the volcano show in science, for example. So we our, our biggest marketing effort was to try to get the stations to make sure they carried us and to do their own promotion on the series. Right. We didn't really have any any uh, responsibility for marketing the program. Um, our other programs that we did as a for-profit company, we had uh, a licensing company and, and traditional t types of uh, advertising and marketing to try to sell our programs, but not the, not the PBS program. No, but that was a, that was a, a good question. Um, I have one. Are there any things that if you could do it all over again that you'd wish you could change or add or do differently do again in particular no i'd like to demand more money <laughs> and it would be great. It would be great. no no we i i think that what we did we grew you know we grew our whole staff grew there was very little turnover on rainbow we grew up together we all started <clears throat> either single or newly married and we all grew up, we had children, we had, you know, the kids grew up together. It was a real family. And um, I, I think that we became, as the show became more recognized, we realized we had a very powerful pulpit. No one was gonna challenge Rainbow. And so the topics that we committed to, um, we did a show on slavery, we did a show on the Vietnam War Memorial, we did a show on uh, Two Mom Family. We did, you know, we, we pushed it out there uh, because we knew that we were safe. Nobody was going to say we're canceling your show <clears throat> because you're too bold. And so um, over time, we became more empowered about the topics that we could, we could go after, the books that we would go after. Yeah. <clears throat> But, but on, a, on a functional level, I don't think we, I would have changed anything, really. We had we were having the best time. Ever. We were going everywhere. We were shooting everything. Everything. And, we Anything. A nine-year-old I mean, self. As a, as a producer, you know, this is a dream job. You don't dream have any, job. You don't have any client who's sitting on your head telling you what to do. You're basically out there doing it for yourself. We, it's like, think about putting yourself in your nine-year-old brain, but you have an adult body that right. can affect things. Where do I want to go? What do I want to do? Well, let's go to a volcano. Hey, that sounds great. Let's go to a bat cave with 60 million bats. Oh, wait a minute. Mm, that means everybody gets rabies shots and then i said and the next thing is i'm not going to do that segment right, neither am i but you know wherever we wanted to go we went we went and lavar came with us with arms wide open so it was not i mean it was a very very special gift to us and the whole staff to be able to work together it was mission driven there was passion behind the show, and it never flagged, not for all of those years. It was the same mission. And I think that's why it lasted so long. You know, the most television series, if they go for five or six years, it's a long run. We had a 25-year run or a 30-year run. Was, that doesn't happen very often no. unless the people who are doing it are really committed and are enjoying themselves because yeah. otherwise it gets stale and dies. Yeah. It's, uh, and to see it have this renaissance now where the kids who watched it when they were little are now showing it to their kids. 
is really you know, it's great. It's it's great. just amazing. We have been so, so blessed to have had that opportunity. It was, it was great. I don't think we changed much at all. And nor should you. <laughs> yeah. Um, that, that makes me, you know, think of, you know, all, you know, when it comes to sports, greats, you know, people talk about sports, there's greats in sports like Tom Brady or somebody will, you know, uh, Serena Williams, they've done 23, you know, 24 years playing in the sport. You know, they talk about how great they are and legends. It sounds like you guys, you know, are legends and we know that you guys are legends. So I just want to, you know, let you guys know that. Um, also, you know, you, you talked a little bit, you, you know, talked a lot about how, um, having that childlike mindset and, um, you know, going to your child self, was there ever a time where it, it was hard to think of another idea or, you know, was it, you know, you just talked to the kids that you worked with, you know, also to understand, Hey, how do we, how can we connect to our audience a little bit better? How can we, you know, speak to these children, um, some more so what you know help continue that inspiration because that is you know a long sustained success so you know finding that motivation finding that you know discipline and being able to you know continually put out great content year after year after year is you know obviously really hard even for the you know some of the best shows you know i think for us um the the biggest inspiration we had was the constant stream of new books that would come into the office I mean, the, the show is book driven. And so we would receive all of these galleys and stories. And, you know, there was always something new coming in the door that would inspire us or give us an idea. So we had this terrific font of, of publishing that was always in the office. And the, the ideas would, that would, would be presented and the trends in society that you'd see in the books would give us new ideas all the time. I think that's part of why we never seem to run out of ideas and things to do. I mean, it was always a constant... Uh, freshening of the stuff coming into the office. Right. And again, we became bolder as time went on. So, you know, in, in a book called Badger's Parting Gifts, we talk about death, how it feels to lose someone you love. I mean, we we always try to make a, in any given season a spectrum of emotional <clears throat> experiences that reflect, you know, some things that were fun and funny, some things that were... <clears throat> very profound, deep and meaningful, and things that were just cool. And <clears throat> so in any given season, we tried to balance that. But for example, there's a wonderful show uh, called The Tin Forest that talks about 9-11. Um, we did not produce that show. That was produced after we left Rainbow, Rainbow and it was marvelous. It was about how children felt about 9-11. So, I don't know where that was going, but <laughs> I, I think we, you know, we, there, there was so much that we wanted to tell kids, look at this, this is so neat, or have you ever felt like this, or dudes, do you like dinosaur jokes, we love them here, um, it's kind of funny, it, you know, we, we kind of just, there was so, so much good stuff out there to talk about for kids that we never had a, we never had a problem. So I'm going to ask, you've probably done a lot of conversations and interviews and things. 
can we have a fresh story of like an experience that you did or see saw a fresh story hmm well i can uh let me think about that i'll tell you a story one of the shows that we did was what was the airplane show the, uh, Bar learned how to fly a plane. What was that? Oh, I can't remember this. One of the books was a story of about a, of a, uh, somebody learning how to fly. And so we decided that as the spine of that show, we would take LeVar up in a private plane and give him an air, a lesson on how to be a pilot. Well, I didn't really think about it too much until I was sitting in the back seat of this plane and LeVar is actually driving and I realized he's got my life in his hand. Oh, and as we're taxiing the runway and we flipped off the ground, I looked at the guy next to me and said, I don't know if I really want to be here. <laughs> it was too and, late. Then, and then we got up and we were about circling the airport and coming in for a landing. And LeVar looks at the instructor and says, you know, I've never done this before. And I said, oh, my God. <laughs> Let me arrive safely. <laughs> yeah, will this be the end of us? Well, we said that a lot. Will this be the end of yeah. us? <clears throat> the volcano. We uh, we were waiting for Kilauea to erupt, and right toward the end of our trip, she did erupt. We flew out there in a Park Service helicopter, and they <clears throat> dropped us onto the crust. And 2,000 feet from us was a 2,000-foot-high fountain of hot, red, molten lava coming out of the volcano. And <clears throat> the helicopter dropped off six of us. They'd only, you can only, only two, take two passengers, two passengers at, at a time. time. There were two pilots. So the six of us that went out there had to make three trips right. to get out there. And so the minute we got out of the helicopter, I noticed my feet were hot. I had sneakers on and my feet were hot. And I bent down and I felt it and it was like hot. The ground was hot. And I said, there were two scientists there. And I said, gosh, how come this is so hot here? And the scientist looked at me and she said, well, you see the fountain coming out right there? I said, yes. And she said, well, that's coming up in a river underneath us. I said, no kidding. And how, how many hundreds of feet is that? And she said about 12 feet. Beneath us was this river. Beneath us was this lava. river. We were essentially on a floating piece of crust under this lava fountain. And there was no helicopter there for me to go scream and get me out of this place. But we were, they said, you have one hour on this volcano. We said, okay, hit the ground running. We videotaped every minute and an hour came up and they were late. We said, great, get everything. You're, keep shooting. You keep shooting. Just keep shooting. So we shot this, we shot, we interviewed the, the, uh, the scientists and we got close-ups of all of the lava we did. And there's still nobody. Well, it gets to be sunset. This is like after three or four this hours. This is three or four hours. We're on this volcano back. and we're going, this is great. This is, this is terrific. But, when, is do great, we, but when do we get uh, off of here? When do we get out of this? Well, way in the distance comes this little black speck and it gets closer and closer and it's the helicopter. And the guy said, oh, we're sorry. We were thrilled, of course. But um, we had to have a part fixed on this helicopter. Well, that only caused mild concern because we were very anxious to get out of Dodge. And they said, here's the only problem. We can only take four of you off the mountain, and then it's going to get dark. We don't fly this at night around the volcano. So two of you have to stay with the scientists overnight. Overnight. In a metal lean-to, which was called Camp 7. The reason being that Camp 1 through 6 had disappeared. Under the lava. 
So, 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 so two people. We looked up with six we, of us. It was me and Cecily and Lavar and our friend Steve, the DP, and then we had an audio guy and uh, Howie. Howie, the video oh, man. The video man. And we looked in, at each other and we said, "I'm not staying. You're not staying." And I said, "Oh!" And Lavar goes, "No." Well, the audio man from Hawaii and our video tech guy, who we brought with us from New York, volunteered. And they they shot and they shot all night of volcano footage that was spectacular well so the next we were all anxious to see them the next morning because the helicopter went out to pick them up the next morning and we see the helicopter coming in and they get off the helicopter and you remember the scene in the, in the ten commandments where moses comes down from the mountain <laughs> And his, hair is white, and his hair is white. And it's and all pushback. blown back. And that's what Howie looked that's like. What he looked like, like, his... like Moses coming off the mountain. <laughs> but from then on, we called him Saint Howie. We called him Saint Howie. <laughs> he said he picked up more women in bars with that story than he could count. <laughs> so that's so that your, was one of the ama most amazing experiences ever. It's a good part of that story. I don't think I've heard that part of that story. <laughs> <laughs> Moses coming down the mountain. <laughs> it was Moses. He didn't have the tablets, but he had some videotape. <laughs> he got the girls from the bar, I guess. That's oh, yeah. Plenty sure. of dates for Howie. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, and, and then this is the last question for me. Um, in your opinion, how does increasing uh, literacy prevent domestic uh, violence, such as domestic violence in society? Domestic violence is such a pervasive and horrifying secret. Many, many people who are victims of domestic violence keep it to themselves. And literacy, the more we learn, the more our hearts and minds are open to other thoughts, other human beings. Causes of domestic violence are numerous. By educating our children about domestic violence to help our children understand our most vulnerable uh, people who are vulnerable to domestic violence, not to mention parents, mostly women, who are victims of domestic violence. We have to let them know there are better things in the world. There are things to aspire to. There are ways that you respect others and that you expect respect for yourself. There are social conventions and there are social remedies to help address <clears throat> the damage, the terrible damage done by domestic violence in this country. And we have a long way to go. But reading can, one, help you escape, bring your mind to another place. It can inform you about things that you can do to protect yourself, to self-advocate. It can share values that may change some perspective on practicing domestic violence, and. Um, but even re reading as a as a more general concept to to open your world to be able to expand your mind to understand all the things that are out there in the world through reading gives you a wider perspective, a and, wider and, outlet, and, and a wider outlook on life. Yes. and on our whole existence as human beings. And so the more of that that we do, uh, I think the better off we are. Right. And I think that um, the work that you're doing at uh, our sister's house 
is so important. It's so critical because these are things, especially domestic violence, that are best addressed at a local level that are best addressed by organizations who are staffed with people who understand, who understand the, the chaos and the damage um, and the hurt that's caused by domestic violence. And it's through things like this podcast and the other work that you're doing there, it's just we really um, respect and applaud the work that you and your funders and your constituents are doing to help address those issues and they're tied up with many others that need attention but we really applaud your mission to help address and problem solve in the issues of domestic violence and supporting those who are victims so i'm going to ask one last question um is there anything that you've ever wished was asked of you in an interview that you never had the opportunity to get to say Yes, I want somebody to ask me, how did I get so handsome? By <laughs> staying married to your lovely partner for so many years. <laughs> I and being respectful <laughs> to one another. <laughs> well, you know, uh, yeah, working with your spouse your whole life. We've been doing this for 40 odd years. Yeah. We're still married. We're still married. I guess it requires some patience some compromise, some skill, and some commitment. So it's not easy, but it's worthwhile. Yes. So, so I want to say that, Michelle, um, we are so proud of everything that you are accomplishing. David, we thank you for your service to your community as well. And we are very honored to be a part of this discussion and thrilled to death to see you, my dear. Thank you for joining us today. You are always welcome back. Thank if you ever you. like to join us for this conversation or another one. Oh, thank you for joining our show. You guys made it much better. Thank you. Oh. Well, and we loved it. Anything for Michelle. Anything. There, <laughs> yep. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Um, is there anything that you would like to say um, before we um, wrap up? No, I think you guys have given, we've done a lot of interviews in our lives. You've had very thoughtful questions, um, interesting questions, challenging questions. Keep asking those questions. Keep doing what you're doing. Thank you for listening. And this is Confabulation. Let us um, know your thoughts in the comment section below. And remember to like, share, comment, and subscribe again. We are from our sister's house. And if you or anyone is experiencing domestic violence, call our hotline at 253-383-4275 or visit our website at OurSistersHouse.com.